On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses a momentary lapse of reason. Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory, Tom Corcoran, and Paul Zotter as we enter a new age of Pink Floyd with a momentary lapse of reason. Gentlemen, welcome to the glory days of 1987. (laughs) Greetings. Glory days indeed. Glory days. Now, I, you know, I'm excited. I'm excited about this episode. In fact, I was almost giddy when I was making dinner for the kids, uh, thinking about talking about this album tonight. This week of preparation has been, for me personally, a wonderful catharsis. This is where I got on the train. I remember purchasing this vinyl right here. Back in the day when it came out, couldn't wow. honestly tell you why I purchased Pink Floyd. Um, I There was nothing in my history to suggest that I needed to own this record, but I, I bought it. And, and I again, you know, this was one of the things in, in heavy rotation when I would hang out down in my basement on Peggy Lane, you know, throwing darts for hours at a time. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I have no idea why I didn't go to the show with you guys. Uh, but I do remember seeing them here in what used to be Texas Stadium, I think is what it was called, in Irving, the one with the hole in the roof. I remember seeing the Division Bell tour there specifically because uh, it was hotter than hell, but it was it was absolutely spectacular. You know, and- Joe, I know why you didn't go to the first JFK show with us is because we we were going with our lady friends. Oh, that's right. Um, Nancy from Superfresh and all. But uh, but um, <laughs> I could have sworn the next summer when they came around to the vet that you were at that show with us. I, I you know, it may very well be. My memory is notoriously shitty. So um, but but anyway, be that as it may, this is where I got on board. We all know that. You know, there's an affinity for that sort of stuff. If last week was, you know, the Roger Waters Pink Floyd, this is the David Gilmore Pink Floyd. And I'm sure we'll get into how much Pink Floyd it actually is. But for me, I just, I I find this era of Pink Floyd without Roger's excessive influence to be extraordinarily peaceful and and positive and enjoyable and i can do it without getting myself all stressed out i did find it interesting that article that i forwarded to you guys you know not that i i i try to avoid touting rolling stone where i can but in in the wiki article that i was i was reading in prep for this you know it it makes specific mention of that as giving a a full view of the legal wrangles that went into a momentary lapse of reason. And quite frankly, it's it's a pretty exhaustive piece and some very, very compelling quotes from the various band members in that article. So I thought it was it was worthy to to send along and include here. But that aside, I just love what David Gilmore does. Now, here's the funny thing. 
because again, this this is where I came in. So I sort of grew up with momentary lapse of reason, the division bell, and then you sort of work backwards and you hit, um, you know, things like wish you were here and 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 dark side, and and then you dabble around in metal, and 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 then of course I sort of wound my way into animals and the final cut, and of course the wall was in there, and and you. It's very easy, at least it was for me, to come away thinking, you know, that that David Gilmore was always as influential in Pink Floyd as Roger was, and what was all the wrangling about the the name and everything else. But the beauty of of what we do here at the Palaver is going through the catalog the way we've done, and it's very obvious, right, that for whatever reason. And I'm not going to say that Roger pushed him out or that by his own admission, um, you know, David can sometimes be lazy. But for whatever reason, the other band members sort of, it seems to me, based on, on what we've talked about and what we've examined and everything else, that the other band members sort of let, allowed Roger to fill that space. In retrospect, it's easy to see how David Gilmore may not have had complete confidence in this project when he started, which in, in hindsight seems ridiculous. When you see it sort of build up in real time and, and the extreme influence that, that Roger ended up exerting over everything they did, and you know, even The Wall, David has what, two, three songs that he's credited with writing on there? Yeah, it, it makes perfect sense to me now. And and in a lot of ways, for me, it makes this album even maybe more remarkable. Well, About Face did not do well for him. In fact, the tour was, I don't know if it was altogether canceled, but there were dates that were canceled. Yeah. So that may have attributed to vibes on this, on this new project. He might have been nervous because of the last thing he did. But um, Joe, going back to the first thing, you were talking about i find interesting so you said that a momentary left of reason was where you jump on board i mean we all have different stories and but you were listening to pink floyd before i, I momentary knew, left of reason, right i knew of pink floyd absolutely i mean as we discussed it was impossible to grow up when and where we did and not know pink floyd which presumably speaks to why i purchased this lp when i say i got on the train here this was the first full Pink Floyd album that I purchased and listened to extensively. Okay. Well, I was really looking forward to today because this album in particular, I mean, even though I had purchased you know, older Pink Floyd albums and, you know, in service tension, we had played, you know, the songs and over our teenage years, this was the album, I'll call it real time. When yeah. when a band comes out with an album, and you're right there in it as a as a listener, especially in teenage years, because mm -hmm. we had been playing these songs for years in a band together, and they were sort of like this classic rock prog band that we've been listening to on the radio, and they like they seemed like they were old even back then, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> uh, just the fact a momentary lapse of reason was a part of my teenage years. And we experienced a momentary lapse of reason in real time and the excitement of buying the record when it came out, the excitement of going to the concert, 
a huge, I mean, a huge concert, right? This wasn't huge. just any concert. I mean, uh, like 60,000 people <laughs> kind of, kind of things. Um, I had never been to a show like this. I think I'd went to the who at the vet. And so that was comparable, but I mean, this but was, the who didn't a have a major... stage show like this, did they? I mean, they're not known for that. No, I mean, thing, no yeah. one has a stage show like a momentary <laughs> reason. I mean, this was a standalone. I mean, this was in a class by itself for sure. So I was really excited because I hadn't listened to a momentary lapse of reason since before I went to college. Like I hadn't, I had listened really? to this album a lot. Well, I listened to this album a lot when it came out, when the, when, when, when the tour was in, in Philadelphia and, but for some reason, and I can't tell you why I've been trying to think about this for you know, the past week or two, why I never picked it up again, but I just didn't. And these songs aren't like songs on the, on the wall or wish you were here or whatnot. They're, they're not really playing the radio too much. Right. So I hadn't heard a lot of these songs in quite some time, roughly 30 years. And so I was like, wow, you know, how am I going to feel about this album now? Is it going to hold up? Is it going to be disappointing or whatnot? And, and so I was very happy to hear these songs again and have a lot of enthusiasm about these songs. It sort of brought back that feeling you get when you, a certain song comes on and you, and you get that feeling of that time in your life. And there, it wasn't just that, but they were actually really good songs. So I was very relieved to, to hear this after such a long uh, hiatus and be excited about this album because it's held up for me. It, it's funny you should say that, Tom, because I had a certain amount of trepidation myself. You know, I've, I've listened to this album on and off for a long time. I, I never necessarily put it on the shelf, but like I said, it, it's, it has you know occupied a very warm spot in my heart, but I have not listened to it extensively up until maybe a couple of weeks ago as we've been going through this segment on the podcast. Um, and, and as you... You know, as we sort of started to build the the palaver narrative around Pink Floyd, I started to to feel a little anxious. Like, what's it going to be like when we get there and we have to talk about it? You know, critically, how is that going to go? And you know, I'm happy to say that, yeah, I, I think. I, I mean, there are there are a couple of moments on here that are you know maybe a little dated and a little you know whatever, but overall, I think it's it's really very good. Yeah, me too. Ken, you've been you've been saying all week that you love this record. I picked the cover of the album for my favorite Pink Floyd album cover. Brings me uh, great spacious beach joy. Having the opportunity to come back to this with the Palaver made me generally happy. Like like you said, you you, you were very happy when you were preparing dinner and thought, oh, I get to Palaver on this. Great album. I mean, there's some dark moments. You get a little bit of war in there. You get some tension, but by and large, it's 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 kind of celebratory. I was thinking about this specifically today as I was, you know, focused preparing for this episode, and I want to say it was on the turning away that it really struck. I mean, I I'd had this idea anyway, but on the turning away, really, really sealed it for me. And several episodes back. I had quoted David Gilmore of saying that he, you know, he fundamentally agrees with a lot of Rogers, um, the things Rogers tries to say, 
but he comes at life from a different perspective. And I thought on the turning away, and th I think that's what, what we're feeling here, Ken, there's this positivity and, you know, what David is trying to say in this song, granted he didn't write the lyrics, but I mean, it, it comes across, it's delivered, you know, he's, he's shining a light on, you know, the, the, the suffering of others, if you will. And if and when Roger was doing that, he would do it in a very accusatory way based on what we have just experienced. And, huh. and David does it in a way that doesn't make you feel bad about yourself, but rather says, here's an opportunity for you to be better. Uh, yeah. I mean, of the two, David was the more positive compared to Roger. So why not? If he's going to put his spin on things and... Why not? Why not be the anti-Roger? <laughs> so, so Ken, what what was going on in the Prague world in 1987? Yeah, ever since I bought my new Stratocaster, I've been fascinated with the influence of David Gilmour in one Stephen Rothery of Marillion, and this caught my eye in the timeline of progressive rock in the wikis. Would you believe that seven days after the release of the final cut? Script for A Gesture's Tear was released in March 1983. And, and catch this fascinating progression. So we're in March of 1983. We jump to March of 1984, Fugazi. We jump to June 1985, Misplaced Childhood. And then we jump to 1987, Clutching at Straws. And then we get... A few months later, in September, we get a momentary lapse of reason. So we have four Marillion albums <laughs> happening in between two Pink Floyd albums. The, How the entire Fishmore timeline occurs between yes. the final cut and a momentary lapse of reason. I love it. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm glad you share my joy in this. It's just <laughs> fascinating because, you know, it's like the old rich guys who already made it big barely have to work. And the other bands are just kicking ass, you know, taking names. So I'll, I'll do the proper timeline here, but, but you, you already see where I'm going with this through that illustration. So also 1983, Steve Hackett, Highly Strung, Asia Alpha, Genesis, Self-Titled, Yes, 90215. Now we jump into the next year, 1984, Fugazi, King Crimson, Three of a Perfect Pair, David Gilmore about face. Oh my goodness, Tom. Rush, Grace Under Pressure. Mm. April, Roger Waters, pros and cons of hitchhiking. Steve Hackett, Until We Have Faces, Jethro Tull Under Wraps, Queens Rank The Warning. Nice. Frank Zappa, Them or Us. <laughs> you get it? Frank Zappa, Thing Fish. This is amazing. 1985. We're so lucky that this is in the Prague timeline. Tears for Fear, Songs from the Big Chair. Really? We don't even have to belabor the point, do we? Nice. There are people already in our corner. Super Tramp, <laughs> Brother, Where You Bound, <laughs> Misplaced Childhood, Asia Astra, October 1985, Rush, Power Windows. Um, just skipping to 1986. 
ELO, Balance of Power, Frank Zappa, Does Humor Belong in Music, Talk Talk, Color is Spring, Peter Gabriel, So, Genesis, Invisible Touch. And I highlight So in Invisible Touch because we've we've spent a lot of time with Invisible Touch and we marveled, marveled that So came out prior to that. But I would say there's a lot of production influence in those two albums that carry over into Momentary Lapse of Reason, maybe most obviously the bass sounds of one Tony Levin. Indeed. 1986, July, Queensryche Rage for Order. Oh, God. <laughs> Frank Zappa's Jazz from Hell. Um, would you believe that in 1987, Porcupine Tree is founded? Really? Okay. Yeah. Yep. June 1987, Roger Waters' Radio Chaos. Marillion Clutching at Straws. Mike Oldfield Islands. And finally, September. Of 1987, Pink Floyd, A Momentary Lapse of Reason. Outstanding. And, and that sort of fits in. So one of the things that I had sent to you guys that I came across, again, in the Wiki article, was this uh, this ranking from 19 or 2016 from uh, one Nick Shilton of Prague, the top 10 essential 80s Prague albums. Now, A Momentary Lapse of Reason does not, in fact appear in the revised and updated edition of 1001 albums you must hear before you die but it does make it onto nick's list of the top 10 essential 80s prog albums so those are rush moving pictures asia asia yes 90125 super tramp brother where you bound um marillion misplaced childhood mm-hmm. Emerson, Lake, and Powell, Emerson, Lake, and Powell, which I thought was an interesting inclusion, but okay. Pink Floyd, A Momentary Lapse of Reason. It Bites, Once Around the World. And uh, Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, Howe. Oh, I guess, and then World Trade, World Trade. Interesting list, but uh, Momentary Lapse of Reason does make it on there. And if we read the, um, the blurb, if I can get to it. Huh. Only because The Wall was released in 79. <laughs> Didn't quite make the cutoff. So if we go to the the paragraph um, that Nick wrote about this. Defying Roger Waters, who had tried to shut the band down in the wake of 1983's acrimonious The Final Cut, Messrs. Gilmore, Mason, and Wright reunited in 1987 for a momentary lapse of reason. Derided at the time by Waters, it's effectively a Gilmore solo album. And while it's not a patch on the Floyd masterworks of the 70s, it merits inclusion here. The ironically titled Signs of Life is an instrumental prelude to Learning to Fly, which showcases Gilmore's guitar, while the pulsating The Dogs of War is considerably darker, and the uplifting On the Turning Away simply sublime. I feel like that may actually be on the wikis. I feel like I've read that before. Oh, really? I don't know. Strangely, yeah. You know, I, I know that uh, Ken enjoys like stopping right at the, the point of um, the album's release, but September 1987... Saw so in June, Roger Waters Marillion released albums in September. Pink Floyd, Rush, Jethro Tull, and yes, all release albums in in 1997. Well, I mean, I mean, 87. What that's a, a big year. What it's a, a huge month, even. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. So if we talk about the particulars of a momentary, it was released on on September 1987. It was uh, produced by Bob Ezrin and David Gilmore, released on the labels EMI and Columbia. Interesting side note: it was 
it was recorded at a whole host of studios, including the the Houseboat Astoria, Mayfair, Britannia Row, and Audio International in London, and then A&M Village Recorders in Can-Am and Los Angeles, among others. The uh, band lineup is David Gilmore on vocals, guitars, talkbox, keyboards, drum machine, sequencers, and production, Nick Mason, electronic and acoustic drums, sound effects, um, and then we have additional musicians. So Richard Wright technically isn't or was not a member of Pink Floyd at the time. So Richard Wright is listed as an additional musician as long, uh, along with um, Bob Ezrin, John Karen, Patrick Leonard, Bill Payne, Michael Landau, Tony Levin, because if you're going to have some sort of um, significant prog album that doesn't have Chris Squire or um, John Wetton on it in the 1980s, apparently you have to have Tony Levin. And, and I'm okay with that. Um, yeah. Jim Keltner, Carmen Apache, um, Steve Foreman, Tom Scott, John Hallowell, Scott Page, um, Darlene Coldenhoven, Carmen Twilley, Phyllis St. James, and Donnie Gerard. And um, of note on the production side is Andrew Jackson doing the engineering and mixing. He plays a significant role in at least one of the episodes, if not two, of the my my favorite Pink Floyd podcast, The Lost Art of Conversation, where he um, he actually did the the um, front of house sound for the Division Bell tour, as well as doing the mixing and production on on. Uh, these three albums. And in fact, I believe it's Andy Jackson who's credited with coming up with the original cut that ultimately led to the Endless River. So um, he's he's uh, credited with coming up with the cut that led to that. So that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, track listings include Signs of Life, Learning to Fly, The Dogs of War, One Slip, and On the Turning Away comprise side one. Side two is Yet Another Movie, Round and Around, A New Machine, Part 1, Terminal Frost, A New Machine, Part 2, and Ending with Sorrow. A Momentary Lapse of Reason is the 13th studio album by the English progressive rock band Pink Floyd, released in the UK and US on 7 September 1987 by EMI in Columbia. It was recorded primarily on guitarist David Gilmour's converted houseboat Astoria. A Momentary Lapse of Reason was the first Pink Floyd album recorded without founding member Roger Waters, who departed in 1985. The production was marred by legal fights over the rights to the Pink Floyd name, which was not resolved until several months after release. It also saw the return of keyboardist and founding member Richard Wright, who had resigned from the band under pressure from Waters during the recording of The Wall in 1979. Unlike earlier Pink Floyd records, A Momentary Lapse of Reason is not a concept album. It includes writing contributions from outside songwriters following Gilmore's decision to include material once intended for his third solo album. The album was promoted with a successful world tour and with three singles, the double A side, Learning to Fly and Terminal Frost, On the Turning Away and One Slip. A Momentary Lapse of Reason received mixed reviews. Critics praised the production and instrumentation, but criticized Gilmore's writing, and it was derided by Waters. It reached number three in the UK and US and outsold Pink Floyd's previous album, The Final Cut, 1983. Now, I want to quickly go and, and 
<laughs> and talk about why it was number three in the in the U.S. and U.K. It was held out of the top spot in both the U.S. and the U.K., or it was held out of the top, top spot in the U.S. at least, by Michael Jackson's Bad and Whitesnake's self-titled album. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, how freaking cool is that? You know, I, that's just, that's pretty badass. Nice. Here I go again. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm I'm no lawyer. I don't know shit about the British legal system. So I'm not necessarily going to um, to go into that. Obviously, we know, you know, what happened. Um, Roger's most current thoughts on the uh, on the subject. I find it f interesting that when I was reading, and I believe it was the, the Rolling Stone article, which hopefully we'll have in our show notes, it made mention of the fact that as late as 1987, if I recall correctly, Roger Waters presents himself at Astoria uh, for conversations with presumably David. I was under the impression that, you know, those sorts of meetings didn't, you know, really happen. Um, but apparently it did. And, um, you know, some of the quotes that, that came out of that article and um, quote, we'd been having these meetings in which Roger said, quote, I'm not working with you guys again, Gilmore says, quote, he'd say to me, quote, are you going to carry on, end quote, and I'd say, quite honestly, I don't know, but when we're good and ready, I'll tell everyone what the plan is and we'll get on with it. I think partly his letter was to gear us up into doing something. So that speaks to, there was a letter that, that Roger wrote where he effectively um, resigned from the band and wanted to be released from the, uh, the accompanying contracts um, that, you know, was being apparently held over his head. Now, when you read the article, Roger has some quotes in there where he talks about, um, you know, maybe that was presented to him in a way that wasn't entirely truthful and he maybe didn't understand what the actual ramifications were. Um, but, you know, take that as it is. Another quote from David Gilmore. He forced his way to become that central figure, Gilmore says. That's what he really wanted, to be that central figure, I felt, and I'm sure Nick did too, that it was not the best thing to happen. As productive as we were, we could have been making better records if Roger had been willing to back off a little bit, to be more open to other people's input. It wasn't like we were all sitting there, leaning on him to look after us. It was a question of him having forced his way to that position, of having, of him being very tough and having more energy for that sort of fighting. And then it goes on and it says, this is, this is fantastic. Bob Ezrin, who functioned as both co-producer and referee during the making of The Wall, he and Gilmore co-produced the new Floyd album as well, says mm -hmm. the verbal brawling never escalated to fisticuffs. It was, <laughs> this is quote, this is Ezrin, Ezrin describing it. It was all done, that English smiling, left-handed adversarial stance they take, um, with the smiles on their faces and soft voices. But basically, they, they were saying, I hate you and I'm going to kill you. 
the war that oh, existed wow. between these two guys was unbelievable. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, wow. So, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a pretty strong quote, really. And uh, so those, those were just a couple of things that, that leapt out at me from that article. Uh, like I said, it really does go into great detail and provides a lot of context, I think, between the two sides. And, you know, again, and I'm happy I can finally invoke the, the, uh, the Lost Art of Conversation podcast in its rightful place, but to hear David sort of very politely describe that situation from the point of view that he's at now, it's, it's, it's fascinating to think that, you know, they were, this legal wrangling was going on literally while they're working in the studio. And part of the joy of moving to LA was, you know, lawyers couldn't interrupt them while they were working. And, and, just the fact that all of this was going on, it's, it's, um, it, it's kind of amazing that, uh, you know, that this came out. I also, another interesting, well, a couple of interesting things. So when um, I recently bought a, a CD copy and I was looking at it today, I honestly hadn't even opened the book. But when you open the book, there are three gentlemen pictured there. Wow. Which is interesting because when I open up my gatefold, right. there's only Whoa. two gentlemen there. Wow. So so at some point, you know, after the fact, they photoshopped Richard Wright into <laughs> into mm. the uh nice. the, the photograph for the C D, which is, you know, that's that's cool. After Richard came back, I thought that was you know an interesting thing that I sort of came across today. The other thing that, that sort of gets me is, you know, the, the inclusion of, of the other drummers in, in this. Um, and the fact that by his own admission, you know, Nick at the time didn't feel like he was capable enough, if that's the right word, I'm paraphrasing here to perform on some of these tracks. And so, you know, as he had done other times in the past, he ended up focusing a lot on, you know, the, the sound effects and sound design portion of this. And, you know, that's one of the, that is one of the, the threads that sort of tie this back to everything else because the the use of those sound effects and 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 all of that i think is is as effective as pink floyd has ever been i think it's you know it, it's well done and it's interesting that and i want to say i read this somewhere i don't remember if it was in the book or this this rolling stone article but i, I do recall a a nick mason quote of of saying we knew we needed to get this right as sort of a way of explaining why he didn't feel confident or comfortable enough maybe doing some of the drumming. Now, the other part of that is when they did this later year's box set and they went back uh, just a few years ago, um, in fact, was it last year, the 2019 remix, I think, they, they not only replaced some of the keyboard sounds with some Richard playing um, Hammondy type organs, but they they had Nick drum on all of the tracks. I think um, effectively removing, I guess, um, you know, a lot of the of the the drum machine type stuff that was that was ongoing. I don't I don't have the full remix album. I haven't actually gotten a chance to listen to it. I've heard um, one slip, 
I believe it's on the turning away and 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 um, I think sorrow. It it does it does give a a, a different more subtle feel to it. Um, but I, I don't know that it's dramatically fundamentally changed in the way that um, Fly From Here Return Trip is. So I, I don't know that we need to spend a whole lot of time necessarily on the remixes other than to say that they exist. And and by David's own admission, they, they tried to make them sound a little less dated. I think maybe they accomplished that, but I don't know that I really care either. Well, well they have accomplished it if if the goal was to make it sound like it was actually recorded at the beginning of 1980 rather than um, produced like it should be, you know, because, because it, it, it does, it, it is, I think more retro sounding, which is, I yeah. think more, more, more true to what you would expect a Pink Floyd record to sound like the funny part. I like, I like the remix. I think the funny part about it for me is that, you know, I'm just so programmed to like even just listening to Momentary Lapse of Reason on the CD, it feels like you are in a stadium listening to it the way it's produced. So when you when all of a sudden it's like not that, you're just like, wow. <laughs> it's really weird. So weird. <laughs> it is. And, that, and that's not to say it's bad. Exactly. And, and it's yeah. it's like it's it, it's really it's it's not hugely different, but it is. It's it's a very strange thing. I mean you feel like you're in like the warehouse at rehearsal, you know, for the big show. They don't quite have, you know, you're not quite in the big thing. <laughs> Look at Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I was fascinated because it kind of looks like I'm in the in the thing here. And so I took a screenshot. <laughs> it's like I'm part of the album cover. It looks like you're laying in one of the beds. Yeah. Dude, dude wake up. Wake up. Wake up. <laughs> Did did you need a reservation for a bed? How's that work? <laughs> so I think that's that's all my my preamble stuff. I think I'm I'm out of material at this point. I, for you know, for me, the 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 fun thing about this album is it 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 gets back to the Gilmore version of Floyd, but it but the Gilmore version of Floyd sounds more like you know the whole version of Floyd, right? With with everybody chiming in, um, whether whether Richard Wright's present, you know, in composition or not. And um, I, I found it, you know, I, I share with you guys before I had been listening to the pros and cons of hitchhiking a little bit. You know, I, I have an incredible appreciation even more so for the final cut after our discussion last week. But it's just not my, it's not my style of Floyd, right? I'm not interested in the, in the crazy uh, dramatic uh, dynamics of the Roger Waters uh, approach to the to the music, and that's kind of the road that he was taking the band down, right after the wall to the final cut. And it's the same; he's down that same road with the pros and cons of hitchhiking. Right? He's really made that complete turn. And what I listened to this week that just I had never really listened to it with this sort of approach before is I was listening to About Face. Because okay. I was I was struck by the interviews about the final cut, how Roger was bickering about you know the final cut about David, while he was on his solo tour, and David was bickering about Roger while he was on his solo tour, and I was like that's so crazy, like they spent all this time making a record, and then they turn around and make their own solo albums, and that's what they're they're touring for. So I went back and listened to About Face, 
And as I started listening to it, I was just like, About Face basically sounds like a demo for Momentary Lapse of Reason. It is so much more like the boat turning back to where he wanted to get to. And I, I think it's amazing and very present of, of David Gilmore at the time to say, okay, if I'm going to take over this, I need help, especially with the lyrics. And I need some collaborators because I, I can't go it alone. And, um, and I need someone like Bob Ezrin to, to help me keep it honest around, you know, the, 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 what, what really is a Pink Floyd record. And for me, that just works better than Roger's deal. But I think that, you know, song-wise, I, you know, I think the lyrics aren't as good as what we've seen from Roger and, you know, on the final cut. I don't think this the song structures are anything to, you know, go crazy over. I think I think sonically for me, it's definitely overall my preference for Floyd. It's funny, Paul. I I did almost what you did, but I did it on the David Gilmore side. I actually, of course, I listened to a momentary last reason, but uh, I I listened to the, the the division bell uh actually today earlier today because i wanted to see i wanted to have that perspective of of this album as opposed to the next because um when i was listening to this and you know a lot of this is just we do so much research on on these on these albums now i knew that most of this was david's material and it was coming across to me as a good solo album you know, a, a solo album with a lot of sort of Pink Floyd texture. But I was interested to hear the Division Bell because I know they had recorded that completely differently, almost like they had recorded um, Dark Side of the Moon. It was just like a lot a lot more input from different people. I realize we're doing that next week, but it, it's just in, in relation to this album, it's it's nice to get that 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 perspective and I was sort of like asking myself this question a lot this week because I sort of felt like you did, Paul, about the final cut. I appreciated it, but I just I really didn't like it. I mean, there are a couple of things that I liked about it, but I really got a lot out of last week's discussion, mainly from uh, Ken and Joe talking about things that they were moved by. And that that in turn made me you know think a little bit more about it. But I think just my personal preference, just the way sort of my musical gears roll, a momentary lapse of reason, even though it is another sort of solo album with a Pink Floyd logo slapped on it, there's still a texture that I, I really like. And there's songs on this that really have that that sort of Pink Floyd texture that puts it in a different league outside of a final cut. I'll be interested to talk to to Ken and even Joe about their thoughts on this, but I'm sort of more comfortable with this album. And I sort of like, I'm sort of a sucker for like 80s bells and whistles a little bit. And this sort of has that. And I think, but but it uses it. It's not, it's not as a gimmick. It's not, it doesn't use the 80s techniques as, as a gimmick. It really you, enriches, it, it really enriches the album. I sort of feel guilty that I like this album. <laughs> Um, compared to the final no. cut, but you know, I, I, <laughs> no, just... I I'm, I'm glad you went there, Tom. I object vociferously when I hear any quote from David Gilmore that they shouldn't have gone with the eighties keyboards and drum sounds. They took what was available. They, they took what was current. 
this is the ultimate compromise. I mean, I, I said earlier that that you, you have the influence of Peter Gabriel So and Genesis Invisible Touch. We need to make a little bit of 80s dance music, but it has to sound like 70s drug music. What are we going to do here? We're going to put all the pieces together. And they just kind of nailed it, like 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 probably because of Bob Ezrin, but also the, the people in here are either already epic or becoming epic. John Karen from this point out doing keyboards and whatnot. I mean, he he is still epic in the Pink Floyd extended universe of characters, um, and he 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 is the guy who appears on both families, the Gilmore family and the Waters family. I think everything about this, the way that they leverage Tony Levin. I mean, I I stopped the recording the other day. I'm just like, what what what's going on here? Who who is this bass player? And and I couldn't put two and two together. And then I pulled it up, and I'm like, oh, because, <laughs> because, <laughs> I, I'm like, okay, I, I I get it. But but everybody on here, like like um, uh, the Scott Page, you know. And, in place of Dick Parry yeah. doing, you know, tenor saxophone, he becomes epic. And, and it's just, it's just so perfect the way they got this going. And I just want to say a word for, you know, I always say Carmine Apice, but his brother is Vinnie Apache because that's how I learned them. Carmine Apice produced a drum book that I bought and, and Vinnie Apache played with Ronnie James Dio for whatever reason. But, we have Carmine here, and just four years before this, he 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 stepped into the bark bark at the moon tour. I just I just love that energy. Just thinking that the, you know the, the the guy who did the bark at the moon tour is stepping into a Pink Floyd album. That's awesome. It's motivating. It's uplifting. The sounds are awesome. We're, getting, we're you know we've got the vocoder, we we've got the fuzzy guitars, we've got great synth patches. And then you get in the dog's war and you have that. I like it all. I, I don't think any of those sounds are cheesy. I refuse to believe that this is crap. You're here. I, I don't disagree with you. Can we talk about Tony Levin for just a second? Oh. You know, my introduction to Tony Levin, I mean, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Peter Gabriel 3. So I, I think I had some sort of awareness of Tony Levin and, and the power of, of good bass players. But the first time I saw Tony Levin was on the ABWH tour and I was just fixated with this guy. And so ever since I was like, Oh yeah. Any, anything, if I see Tony Levin, I'm like, I, I want to listen to it. I don't care. And, and what really strikes me, like the, the most memorable experience I have with Tony Levin is seeing him with seal. He's willing and able to do whatever is required for whatever he's playing. So if he needs to play your face off, he'll play your face off. But like I can remember in on on one of the one of the opening numbers on the Seal tour and I forget the name of, of the song. It's one of the first ones off the the first album, but he's basically just playing a really simple bass line on a bass synth. And he's just standing there and he's fucking slaying it. And then, you know, two songs later, he's got his stick out and you're just like, fucking hey, man, whatever. I mean, so when I was listening to this and I was thinking about Tony Levin, right, because with the and we've sort of talked around this throughout the rest of the catalog, we all know that um, 
Richard comes from his sort of jazzy perspective with these complex chords and he likes all that. Nick is, you know, the perfect drummer for Pink Floyd in a in a very understated, dare I say, basic sort of way. You know, you don't have a Bill Bruford going crazy back there um, with all this, you know, hitting and everything else. And, and Roger sort of sits somewhere in between. Every once in a while, Roger would play something that you'd go, well, that was kind of interesting. But a lot of times, Roger just, as a bass player, was sort of solid and sitting in the background. It, it was, you know, maybe a, a step above, you know, mundane, but it, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't anywhere close to, to Chris Squire or, um, you know, or, or Tony Levin. So when I listen to this in that perspective, I I think that Tony is is really straddling a, a really close line. I think he's a little bit busier than Roger. I think he's a little bit more intricate than Roger, but not, and, and I don't know if it's if it's his playing or the way it's produced into the mix, but it's not so in your face that you can't get away from it, right? I'm going to credit Tony with, with being able to sort of walk that line and, and embody sort of what the, the bass in Pink Floyd does while embellishing it just a little bit. I mean, is that crazy? Do you guys see it that way? Stylistically, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Where my head is headed with Tony is um, the Chapman stick, obviously. Um, but, but maybe even more epic is just simply the Music Man bass with the, 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 the finger sticks, yeah. which, which he did previously uh, in So. I like to imagine with guitars, but even more so with bass, if you didn't have the speaker, how would you get that sound? Mm. How big would the instrument be? How long would the string be? And what would the string look like when it was moving? So when I think about an electric bass, there is like, um, you know, a, a typically, you know, finger plucked electric bass or even a pick pluck electric bass. There is that, you know, sine wave curve with a, with a string moving. If you were going to zoom in, you know, with a camera and really look at the string. When you get those finger sticks and you get that thud, it's like an entirely different oscillation <gasps> of the string. It's, it's almost like somebody dropped a cinder block on a telephone cable. It's like, boof. It's like this, this thing that happens to it because, because it like, it still resonates, but it's like a very measured and very violent re resonance mm -hmm. in the right context. It's absolutely beautiful. That's what Tony brings. It's, it, 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 it's almost competing with the synths of the, of the eighties where look what my bass can do. That's awesome. I love it. Stylistically, he nailed it. He, he, he didn't go too far into the Chris Squire or Giddy Lee territory. He, he stayed in the in the Roger Waters zone by wild being true to himself. Yeah. You guys want to get into the songs then? Or we have anything else sort of general to speak about the, uh, the record? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. So the, the little blurb that we read sort of speaks to the perhaps tongue-in-cheek nature of, of Signs of Life. Um, 
you know, it's a, it's a clever little title. Great way to sort of open this new era in Pink Floyd, right? Um, when Pink Floyd was supposed to be dead and apparently Roger Waters was, was running around saying it was, what, a, a, a spent creative force or whatever it was that he said. So I, I think it's, you know, there there's a lot of sort of tongue-in-cheek here, I think, um, when you talk later on about a new machine and things like that. The question I have is, how is this... How is this track four minutes long? That's the beauty of of the, you know, these prog albums. You get these these really, you know, th these these instrumental bits that seem like they're nothing, and yet they're the length of a of a normal quote unquote song. I just find it a little funny, and I also find it funny that we don't hear, if I if I recall correctly. We don't hear David Gilmour's guitar until 2:30 into this into this album. That's kind of a ballsy way to start the the David Gilmour era, I think. God, I love that whistling synth just echoing the right. guitar. Oh, so yeah. good. And, and, I, and it, it, it's 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 Bob Ezrin, which is beautiful. I mean, it could have been anybody, but it's Bob. And, and I think once. Once David does come in and, and you have, like you said, the, 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 the synth um, echoing the guitar and whatnot, it speaks to Shine On You Crazy Diamond without being Shine On You Crazy Diamond or without aping Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Nice. Um, I, I think as I was listening to this a little bit more critically as we got closer, I think there was a, an awareness that they were making a Pink Floyd record and they wanted to provide... Either they wanted to provide certain cues to take the listener there, or they were drawing on their own history as, as musicians together and saying, hey, this is something that, that kind of works for us. I, I don't know. But but it, it happens, you know, several times throughout this record. But again, I, I, I don't see it in a way as being derivative. And, and maybe that's just because I'm a David Gilmore apologist. I don't know. There is something, you know, about this that, that signals the return to the old, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, we're not doing the Rogers thing anymore and not that it's like that, that it's just like, this is, you know, we've gone down a certain road and we're veering back towards the, the, the highway that we've been on before. And I, and I think it feels, it felt great like that when you saw it live too, with the videos of the oars going through the yeah. water. I do love Andy's description of of them making that recording, and he's like, "It's our boat, yeah. it's our river." That's just that's <laughs> so cool. That is cool. So we move into learning to fly. Learning to fly is, you know, much like this album. I think learning to fly is a song that it's easy to sort of just look past, but. While it's it's maybe not as intricate as some other things that the band have done, um, and it does have sort of that you know elongated, you know sort of spoken word voiceover, um, you know air chatter type thing. It, it, it's a very satisfying song. There's I think there's a reason why it, it you know it was it was a a popular song and and it still is. It's deceiving in a way. Because it is relatively simple, right? But it, it is Pink Floyd. Yeah. I mean, it. I, I don't think the words are great, but they're, they do paint a picture very nicely. Um, and the music gives you that sort of cloudy, ethereal kind of feel somehow that really, you know, it, it, you can picture yourself gliding through the air. Now, it, it is interesting that apparently 
in the interim between the final cut and um, I guess a momentary lapse of reason, both Nick and David learned to fly and in fact bought an airplane together. Which would have come in handy when they were trying to film a pig over, uh, over the power <laughs> station. <laughs> oh, man. So, I mean, what do you guys feel about learning to fly? I mean, any strong feelings? No one has anything to say. Is it is it good? Is it bad? Is it What is it? Yeah, I think that it was good enough. And let me explain that. I think that uh, it, it was good in the fact that it was commercial enough to get people involved, but it also gave you elements of Pink Floyd. I don't know why I keep coming up with this. I'm probably going to be beaten to death for saying this, but it almost reminds me of why can't this be love in a way. It was so it's different. And some people, some sort of hardcore Van Halen people were like, well, what is this? You know, there's keyboards and this is like so different than I'm used to hearing. Like learning to fly has elements of something new, but it's still, it's, it's good enough to keep you going for the rest of the album until you get to like one slip and on the turning away. Then you're like, okay, this is, yeah, this is another level. And then when you hear those songs, you're like, okay, I'm here. And, and, uh, so I, I think that, you know, Learning to Fly does its job and it was a good song to start with. It's not going to go down in my book as one of my favorites. And, and you know, that's a, that's a pretty savvy decision, right? To open with, with the single that, as you, I think, accurately describe it, Tom, is good enough. It's good enough to get you roped in and say, okay, I see where they're, they're going here. And then... By the time, you know, the, the second and third single come out or you buy the album and you get into the deep cuts and you're like, holy shit, because that's not even close to being obviously the best track on this this record. So if you can grab people in with with what is clearly not your best and there's that much more waiting for you when you get into it, that's that's pretty savvy. And one of the things I guess that, you know, I've come to realize is... David Gilmour is nothing if not savvy. Um, you know, you don't come out of, of you know, the, the legal wrangling and, and everything else in the position, you know, in the band that he was in to become rock god David Gilmour of Pink Floyd without being savvy. Well, he's a good negotiator and he takes advice and he solicits advice. He's got three other co-writers here. Yeah. We haven't said the name Anthony Moore yet, who helped as a lyricist. Um, clearly Bob Ezrin. And then this is where John Karen shines. Right, yeah. So John Karen's list uh, credited with coming up with the, the basic chord sequence that, that became this song. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's, it, 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 great work and, and, and a great way to, 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 to pivot his career. Absolutely wonderful. Um, the only thing you left out was three letters, MTV. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, MTV. It did MTV. make a difference. Got to have the MTV. Paul, your the thoughts video, on learning? The fly? video was cool. The video was cool. You got that right. Um, I I do kind of like the if it's the obvious metaphor or if it if it doesn't really quite. I like the idea that the opening track of. David Gilmore's 
taking the helm, if you will, of Pink Floyd being called Learning to Fly. Right? I mean, exactly. It's it's almost too obvious to be what it, it has to be, right? Right. <laughs> 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 you know, first you have signs of life, then you learn to fly. And, you know, a couple songs from now, you're into one slip and away you go. So, yeah, very cool. One thing that is really cool about, this is kind of silly, one of the coolest things about Learning to Fly is that just as it begins to fade out, you get the first breathy growl of the of the, the dog. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. fucking cool. When you're just sitting in the dark listening really loud and that happens, you're just like, yeah. <laughs> so that's a great segue into the dogs of war. You know, we get uh we get growly, gravelly David Gilmore, you know. Um it's always interesting when when David tries to sing like this. It sounds like it's so difficult for him to do that. He, he's he's been doing this a lot. He's been doing it I mean, since a lot on, Yeah, yeah, and animals and whatnot. Yeah, I love it, it. it. It just it doesn't it doesn't seem to be his natural singing style. Well, this was my exhibit A in how do we counter "Welcome to the Machine" with something. A bit more polished. <laughs> what is always so interesting to me is this is a 12-8 song. Chip-a-lit, 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 chip-a-lit. And, and you're getting the anticipation. Ba-dump, ba-dump. Always the note before the big, the little note before the big note. And the way the synth sound is, or the bass sound is, the bass synth, that anticipation note is, is almost ghosted. Paul, do, do you know what I'm saying there? Which is really creepy. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're right. <laughs> yeah. 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 And cool. that is the defining phrase, the meme, if you were, the sonic of, of the song, that, that little, you know, ghostly bass pastiche that drives you on. And it's just mechanical enough to give you the... You know, isn't this the age of uh, Star Wars and Reagan and, and whatever? So we've got nuclear ideas. We have, you know, space ideas. We have that creepiness. Um, and he ties it in very well. I'm, 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 I'm always impressed with this song. And then most expressive is where they just break into the friggin' sax solo and they boogie down. Yeah. I, I love it. Love the words. The words are pretty good. Yeah, I, I think, you know, learning to fly maybe lyrically not so great. Um, Dogs of War, I think, are are good, but I do think the words will get better as we go on. Yeah, it's almost like they uh, they uh, they track this album in order of the lyrics that they wrote. You know, they got yeah. better and better as they went. This is awesome. I mean, and yeah, maybe it does get better, but this whole deal, Dogs of War and Men of Hate, with no cause we don't discriminate. Discovery is to be disowned. Our currency is, is flesh and bone. Like each couplet I like. Um, particularly the way he expresses it. Hell opened up and, and put, put on, on sale. sale. Gather around and haggle. Oh, I love that's, that. <laughs> that's the best line in the song, quite possibly. Gather around and haggle. And the way he says it, that's great. For hard cash, we will lie and deceive. Even our masters don't know the web we weave. Just illustrates the phrase "one world" comes up again later in the album. Is it sorrow? I, I believe, but 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 
I, I do like the idea of one world. Yeah. Do we know who's credited with writing the lyrics for this? We do. Uh, yep, yep, yep. He brought, he brought in uh, the same. Yeah, Anthony Moore did the lyrics for that one. Or I'm sorry. Um, yeah, Anthony Moore did the lyrics for Dogs of War as well. And then on the next track, we get his, uh, his collaboration with Phil Manzanera, which is fascinating to me. So I, I knew Phil was involved in, in Roxy Music. I knew Phil showed up on that Live in Gdansk video that we had talked about previously. I, I don't know that I realized that Phil was involved as early as this. And so I went back and I, I did just a little little rabbit hole searching on, on Phil Manzanera because the idea of of David Gilmore hanging out with someone from Roxy Music seems perhaps a little incongruous. Um, but obviously David performed, I guess, with Brian Ferry at Live Aid is, is where presumably that connection first started. And Eddie Jobson also came from Roxy Music, which I find to be utterly fascinating. So there's, at first blush, I don't know that I would have anticipated Roxy Music being as involved in this sort of, um, you know, family tree but but there they are so i find that to be interesting yes sir well um now that i've jumped on the bandwagon of stephen wilson's album years podcast he makes many references to roxy music so so you know in that sense roxy music has a lot of prog cred yeah phil also produced david's on an island album now we ken you had talked um previously about some of the influence of Peter Gabriel So, perhaps most obvious here with what I like to affectionately refer as the Red Rain section, which it's interesting how in the in the remix nice. they try to sort of downplay that a little bit, but it's it's very I mean, you almost think that Peter Gabriel's <laughs> gonna come in singing after the break. But uh, <laughs> I mean I mean I guess this is my era. I mean, I don't know. Maybe every song needs a red rain section. I, I, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> complaining about it. Um, but it, you know, when when you stop and think about it, you're like, oh, well, yeah. Of course, that sounds like red rain, and 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 most of that is driven by Tony and and the way that bass break sounds. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Beautiful stuff. You know, talk about lyrics. This this was the first of the the lyrics that I wrote down, and it comes in at the end. I it's just something with it resonates with me. The the line was it love or was it was it the idea of being in love? Um, you know, that's <sighs> just it, it's we've all been there. We've all done that. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a it's a driving tune. It it really kind of grabs you, and it has it has this power. And and Tom, I don't know for you if this is where you know the album really starts to sort of take off, but for me, it is. And, and it's just like, yeah, I love I love this song. This speculation on the web that caught my eye is uh, David was with Ginger Gilmore for fifteen years, had uh, three children, and. The speculation was that, that, that they were on the verge of breaking up, but but this is that moment where they came back together and had Matt 
Gilmore, there's clearly a seed is planted in the lyrics. So, so there's clearly a pregnancy after the uh, delightful shenanigans and, uh, and the couple stays together in, in, if you dissect the lyrics enough. So yeah, I, mean, I that, don't believe that. That certainly yeah. explains binds a life for life. I get that. It's, it's it, it, wonderful lyrics, very, very deep. And, and it, it catches my attention as a 50 year old much more than it did when I was 17. Yeah. Amen to that. And then we get on to On the Turning Away, which we spoke a little bit about in the preamble. I just, you know, this is this is sort of an anthem song. And, and it's funny, Tom, you were talking about maybe the the connection between uh, A Momentary Lapse of Reason and, and The Division Bell. And in some ways, On the Turning Away maybe is you know, if we're going to use that terminology, you know, the, the demo for something like um, High Hopes or A Great Day for Freedom, something like that, right? It, it sort of speaks to, you know, it's, it's almost like David tried to do it better, I think. That being said, I think On the Turning Away is, is absolutely wonderful. I, I think it's classic Pink Floyd. As I mentioned, it already it, it really illustrates the difference in perspective between David and Roger, and it makes me you know I can listen to this and I can feel positive about my ability to impact perhaps change as opposed to feeling like I'm a worthless piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really really beautiful melody. And it's it's really well done. One Slip and On the Turning Away are my two favorites on this album. When we start One Slip, I'm like in that place, you know, until the end. That's not to say that aren't, there aren't some other really great moments on this album. But for me, these two are as good as this sort of era gets. Do we want to talk about that part? And I know we all know what it is. That part. At the end. It sounds like it's from the wall. The down, 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 down. That's like, it's from the wall. Wait, are you in but, the outro solo or are you in the, in the lyrics? It's oh, very... Yeah, 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 yeah. With the, with the big Hammond swell and everything else underneath it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they were... How do I put this? They were cognizant of the fact that it was similar, yeah. yeah. Wall, and, and, but and they I, knew it wasn't like they were right on the line, and they knew they were right on the line. I think it works really well, and it doesn't bother me. But I'm wondering if Roger Waters was listening to this, going, "What the hell?" Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's exactly what I was talking about earlier with the cues. Right there, there are certain uh, things that they need to sort of remind you that this is a Pink Floyd record. I think this is one of those things, Paul. Yeah. I was just going to say, I, I I totally think you're right on the money, both of those statements, because, you know, they're in G, they're going to modulate down to E minor, the relative minor, so that David Gilmore can fucking melt your face with a monotonic yep. scale. And, and you know, anytime you go from the G to the E minor with a do, 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 I mean, you are in uh, the Pink Floyd, the wall mode. And I think they probably were going to do it. And they just went, well, what the fuck? We're Pink Floyd. <laughs> Let's take. Let's do it for Rockworth. You know, and you wonder. Right. You wonder who in the control room said that. You know, was it was it was it Gilmore? Was it Ezrin? You know, it's like you're fucking Pink Floyd. Do it. You know. 
<laughs> I, to be a I, fly on that wall. You know, when we talked about um, Gilmore singing in that gra- gravelly voice, a Dogs of War, um, it always amazes me when, you know, when I listen to him singing in his sort of angelic falsetto, uh, especially at the very beginning when it's just him completely exposed. So, I mean, he just sings so beautifully. Um, the contrast is is wonderful. Um, I will say that one thing that I really did like about the later years remix of this is that at that beginning, there is more harmony uh, from a keyboard in the opening passage. So on the original, it's more of just a pedal tone bass with a couple of notes here and there to help you to get through the, the progression that's that he's singing through. But on the uh, remix, there is actually keyboards playing playing sort of the progression of of the um, of the melody, which I found to be quite enjoyable on the uh, on on the rem- remix. But what a powerhouse uh, live song! And this was the when I was listening to it over the last couple of weeks. This is when I every time I heard the song, I was I felt like I was <laughs> JFK, <laughs> and I was like, this whole album is 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 mixed and mastered like you're in a freaking football stadium. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> it, it, it it sounds it's yeah. so much fun. It sounds so epic. We can flip the the disc over and get to yet another movie. Now, yet another movie for me is amazing because when I'm not actively engaged with the medium, I almost forget yet another movie. And then I listen to it and I'm like, this song is fucking amazing. I just, I, I don't know how it just completely evaporates off my, off my radar because all I can ever think about when I'm away from this disc is one slip on the turning away in sorrow. That's all I can think about and right, running to fly, right, right. obviously. But right. but when I I'm in yet another movie, uh, I'm just like, well, this is this is absolutely lovely. I just looked it up and I wished so badly that it meant something, but it's it's written to be abstract. So 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 these these characters. I don't know. It, it, it sounds like there, there's a love story here. The, the part that breaks my heart is he's just the same as all the rest. He's not the worst. He's not the best. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for this to materialize into characters, but it's not meant to. It's a real tease on the part of Gilmore. So, so Tom, you came back, and I'm happy because on yet another movie when you sort of have that that weird keyboard breakdown. Uh-huh. Does this in any way, shape, or form remind you of Whale Song from Star Trek Four? Interesting. <laughs> um, it hasn't to this point. I'm surprised. That's, that's all I can think of. <laughs> wow. Okay. I can see why, why you would say that. I, I never thought of that, but uh, there'd be whales here. <laughs> So I'm curious, and, and I don't really have anything as specific to say personally about round and around. And, and but I'm, if you guys have something, you know, you're obviously more than welcome. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on a new machine part one and two, and we can sort of, you know, talk about that in and around Terminal Frost. We've already had some text conversations about Terminal Frost, which I think is 
from a production sound um, and song structure point of view, reminds me of something out of the the Duran Duran family tree. You know, I had mentioned Tiger Tiger or mm-hmm. Arcadia's Rose Arcana. Um, Colby, when when faced with those choices, uh, suggested Andy Taylor's French guitar, but it, it's all the same family tree. I find it to be very interesting um, that that's there. And I think a lot of it is... is um, is probably driven by the the alto sax or the soprano saxophone. I think it really, you know, it, it evokes that for me. And you know, a lot of the the drum programming, I think, you know, kind of brings me there. It, it's interesting. Now, so that's that's my thought. But but what do you guys think about yet another movie? Is this something that should be there? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it weird? And you mean the new machine? Or, or... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, a new machine. Ah, uh, it's never really stood the test of time well for me personally. Oh, um, <laughs> but you know, it, I I kind of look at it for what it is to me, which is the introduction to Terminal Frost, and then the sort of the bookend of it. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like to it's sort of that. Um, but uh, you know, it just could be my general aversion to the vocoder. Um. Yeah, I thought it was really epic, you know, um, back in the day. Less epic now, but I, I, I still kind of like how it bookends Terminal Frost. Ken, you seem to have a differing opinion. I mean, the sequencing is perfect. This is what it is. This is what it needed to be. I just love the way, if I had to guess, I, I would credit Bob Ezrin for making these little pieces work so well. From it, from you know, a new machine part one, the terminal frost to a new machine part two. I just, I just love the melody of it all. The specifics of the vocoder haven't really thought too much about it. It's great, and and just the, the character, whoever Gilmore is evoking, it's like some kind of Ozymandias or something. I have always been here. Yeah. It's like who, who the fuck is us? I like it though. Yeah. Well, and, and I think he, you know, say what you want to about the vocoder or anything else. It, it's, you know, here again, it's another tease because you 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 get quite a bit of information about this character, or at least emotion about this character, in a, a relatively few amount of words. There's this seems like more than a lifetime um, bit. You know, it, it, there's there's some sort of containment entrapment here that this person is is you know, dealing with this continued existence that maybe isn't exactly what one would have chosen. It's, I, I find it somewhat oddly compelling. Tom, how about you? Any thoughts? Do you care? I mean, I I like it, but I'll tell you, <clears throat> I'm on such a high at this point from still one slip and on the turning away. It, it's sort of, <clears throat> I, we never sort of get back to that point. Looking at this at a distance, side two is sort of showing some holes. We're ah. in sort of like a danger area. It is from the signs of light to signs of holes. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> hey, that boat you got there in that first song—it's got a leak. Okay. <laughs> so, any thoughts about Terminal Frost uh, along the lines that I have suggested? I mean, Colby sort of agreed with me, but Ken, you probably know more than the others about. 
Oh yeah, I, I dig that whole Duran Duran Tiger Tiger thing, and yeah, yeah, I'm 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 totally down. Love the Soprano Sax. And why is it called Terminal Frost? I don't know. It's got such a a sparse, weird mechanical production to it. It sounds like you could be out in the tundra somewhere. I'm down. You know, same, same similar feeling that I get from some of those uh, Mellotron patches that leave me exactly like in a wind tunnel. Exactly what I was thinking about, Ken. Um, the 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 Mellotron because you've always you've always described the Mellotron as very cold. So. And then Indeed. we guys, I, I I have to say the sax just doesn't cut it for me on on this stuff. I'm still on a high from Adam Hart Mother. Like that is to <laughs> me, like you have your shit together. Like that is like Tom. It's 1987, well man. Out. It's well thought out. It's well put together. This is just okay. Let's stick a saxophone in here and like do do a little solo or whatever. I mean, so it works. It's nice. They have stiff competition with their with their own music. So at this point, when they just pull out a saxophone, it's like okay, big freaking deal. Well, no, um, no. I, mean, I, I think I think it's the soprano saxophone because we've already had. Um, have we already right. had a, a killer um, alto sax solo on this? Yeah, I think we have. I mean, Dick Perry has been in and out. So I I, I think. I think it's the soprano sax that throws you off because that's very unPink Floyd, <laughs> but very eighties. Very eighties. Yeah. Now Tom Scott is the likely player here, and he's from the GRP fusion crowd. There are so many horn players on here. Three, I think. Yeah, I think so. But, but my guess is it's possibly him. I mean, I and, and and the reason why I spent as much time as I did on on Phil Manzanera is because I think this track, Terminal Frost, is you know David Gilmore was, for lack of a better phrase, flirting with with you know that crowd. I think this is as close as you get to it, because again, I mean, David Gilmore showed up on Arcadia's record. He showed mm -hmm. up on All About Eve. David Gilmore at this point was was out and about and exploring and interacting and, and bringing in different things. I find it strange that on this particular track, so much of that shows up where it really, it, it either isn't there or it's suppressed or overshadowed in the rest of this record. That's the reason why I wanted to talk about Terminal Frost because I just find it peculiar in that manner. Hey, think Gilmore is a uh, material man and he's living in a saxophone jam. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think once once you make the decision to trade licks with a dog, you're pretty much opening yourself to be able to do anything you want. So so I mean twelve years later, he you know, Seamus wasn't around, but you know, he, he was able to get delicious and beautiful uh soprano saxophone. There you go. <laughs> And then we can finish up with, with Sorrow. I love David's description of how he wrote this. I, I love still to this day the level of enthusiasm he gets around you know that particular song. There's another song um, that we'll get to next week that he also seems to have the same level of enthusiasm. But it's, I, I, I don't know, I think this is just absolutely delightful. My note simply says splooge. Um, 
you know, Thank you. I, I think it's, a, <laughs> I think it's a, it's a, it's a spectacular way to, to end the album. And I absolutely love, you know, cause part of the, the, the story is the lyrics came first. And apparently in one of those bursts of inspiration, the lyrics came all at once. And then David had to create something, I guess, musically around it. And the, the very first two lines just fucking blow me out of the water. The sweet smell of a great sorrow lies over the land. Plumes of smoke rise and merge into the leaden sky. I mean, it's it, it's it's structurally complex. It's grammatically interesting. It's very evocative. Uh, it's just uh, at that point, I'm fucking done. The beginning of sorrow and terminal frost. What Ken? What you said at the beginning of the show when we talked about. When you when you mentioned like the production on this record is exactly what it needed to be at the time, it was what the tools that they have, and it's it's the way it should be. Those words are truest in Terminal Frost and the way they kind of remixed it, and in Sorrow. Like there's absolutely no reason why they needed to to pare down the opening guitar um, in Sorrow the way they did on the remix and um, Terminal Frost the same way this is a perfect embodiment of, of what you were saying the, this the, probably has the biggest gated snare on the album just 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 throwing that out possibly there. possibly the coolest thing about the the during the verses um of sorrow i'm pretty sure they lifted directly off of the master tapes of the wall from waiting for the worms the backing guitar guitar places <laughs> When uh, you know at, when it's the waiting, and he goes through the whole thing, and and the, you hear the people chanting, and the guitars are just in these harmonies. Like if you listen to the guitar behind the, it's like, it's like wow, they, what is with this song? It's everywhere. <laughs> um, it adds, you know, that hauntingness that you were just describing, Joe, and those lyrics. It really sort of adds that darkness that that we've we've experienced from Pink Floyd before in a, in a really cool way. Uh, this has always been the song for me that I never think of when I think of this album. Really? This until is I yours? Put it, until I put it on, and then I'm like, holy shit, this song is awesome. <laughs> Gilmore is epic in that you know guitar mantra thingy in the beginning. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, he gets to just shred his face off in the middle and at the end didn't he record that opening guitar line at like a stadium somewhere isn't isn't that what i th i think i read that they they put him into an empty arena and ran him through the pa system really yeah that sounds like fun <laughs> i'm pretty sure when we saw them at franklin field they did that right sorrow yeah, that was a big part of um, yes. this tour. At JFK, too. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Franklin Field? <laughs> Franklin Field's at 10, isn't it? Where did that come from? <laughs> JFK. Yeah, it was the second to the last concert ever legally allowed in JFK. And the stadium was half falling apart. Yeah. Only to be outdone by, apparently later that summer, the Grateful Dead. I, I could have sworn that we we all were at 
at JFK at least two more times after that show because we were at the Monsters of Rock. And wasn't you two? Was you two after this? You two, Joshua was at the Tree, bed, wasn't it? I think you two. Now you two was at JFK. Was it? Was it before? Was it before this tour or after? We'll have to check setlist FM and figure it out. Hmm. So I want to say it was before. Was it before? Okay. Yeah. So I've I've been sitting on what I thought was a provocative question, but maybe after the discussion, it's not nearly as provocative. In last week's episode, we considered an album that has the Pink Floyd name on it, which in all intents and purposes is a Roger Waters solo album. This week, we consider an album that has the Pink Floyd name on it, and as a lot of people have described it, is a David Gilmour solo album. Which one <laughs> is more Pink Floyd? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this one is more Pink Floyd. As would I. I thought it was provocative, but having this conversation, I think it's much less provocative than I, <laughs> than I thought it was two hours ago. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of a trick question, Joe. It is. I mean, I, of course it is. I, when you think about it, I have to say, as I said before, I prefer this album. I, I would choose this one over the final cut. But I have to say, as far as your actual question, when Roger Waters sings certain things, on the final cut it's just pink floyd you're there you're that that's pink floyd period and although you don't have richard wright and although you may as an album you may not have all the contributions from david gilmore but on any given song if you listen to like five ten seconds of it you're like pink floyd because i think roger waters has an indelible impact or i should say his voice has an indelible impact on on people in a way that there's an intimacy there that sort of drags you into what he's doing i would say as far as your question goes a final cut is is more pink floyd i mean if you look at it certain ways each one really only has three of the core right members yep. of the past they're a different three. Roger Waters, his voice, and this has to do mostly because of the wall, right? I mean, the wall left an impact on everyone and their mother, no pun intended. And <laughs> a good portion of that was due to, to his voice. That's so I, I would say uh, the final cut. Okay. I'm, before, I just want to say that what you just made me think of the thing missing from this, which was my biggest perhaps criticism of the final cut, is that you you do miss that interplay between the waters singing and the and the Gilmore singing you know and you had the chance for it in the final cut and they chose not to do it yeah and and that that is a good point and you know Richard's you know we had talked about the the vocal impact of Richard Wright back earlier on in the catalog and you know but again by all accounts when you read um, the histories by all accounts Richard Wright didn't have that much to do with this record so, you know, and, and maybe that's something that, that comes into play more the next record. So, hmm. so Ken? When I, when I heard your question, Joe. You had a physical reaction. I, <laughs> yeah, I refuse to answer, but I, I've, I've come up with an analogy. 
A momentary <laughs> lapse of reason is the album of equivalent of The Force Awakens. <laughs> wow. Ken, I swear to God, I swear to God, I <laughs> thought of The Force Awakens like 90 minutes ago when I was making a point about, you know, oh, this album boy. providing cues back to the original. That is that is priceless. I love it. Okay. Well, wow. It's funny, Ken. And don't we, don't we get... We we that episode seven is the Force Awakens. So don't we get this plus two more studio albums? That's right. Yep, we do. Division Bell, Endless River. Endless River. Yep. All right, gentlemen. This is uh, this this. Like I said, I've I was very excited to talk about this. This has been this has realized all of my expectations. So I want to thank all of you as always for for coming along and providing such a blissful, peaceful experience talking about an album that maybe has uh, stood the test of time better than than one would have hoped. Paul, you got a big grin on your face. Yeah, no, I'm just laughing at your outro. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the peaceful compared to how we started last week. <laughs> All right. So on that note, I will, uh, I will thank you gentlemen again. And next week we get to go even bigger and bolder with uh, the division bell. So that would be cool. Thank you, gentlemen. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, questions, comments, and feedback. You're welcome to reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We are at Progpala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at some point in the not-too-distant future, Pandora, or presumably anywhere you find your podcast. And as always, you're hosted on SoundCloud. So, until next time, thanks for listening.